born in 1509 to an upper middle class family in uh, France. His dad had planned for him to be in the priesthood, and so he was taking classes and, and preparing in that way. Now, Calvin was eight years old when Martin Luther wrote the 95 Theses. Uh, so so to, to give us a little perspective of, of what we're talking about or when we're talking about in terms of the Reformation. Now, while Calvin had been studying for the priesthood, his dad decided that he really wanted to see his son go into law. And so he, he said to him, I, I want you to, to kind of switch course. And so they, he, he began studying in these prestigious universities in, in France as he prepared for law. And while studying to be an attorney, he uh, came across the, the Renaissance emphasis in learning, which was to go back to the classics, to go back to the source, if you will, and, and to look and, and to see what the, what the ancients had written. And, and so Calvin was really intrigued by, by the writings of, uh, uh, of those who had uh, gone before, and he began to really study them. But during this time, in his university studies, uh, the Lord got a hold of him, and he came to know Christ. He came to know Jesus, and, and his life began to change dramatically. His focus shifted. Instead of studying the classics, now Calvin was committed to studying the very Word of God, and, and Calvin began to write. Uh, he was writing uh, lots and lots. Even as a very young man in his 20s, he's, he's producing a, a lot in terms of the written Word, and, and in his uh, writings, he focused on two areas. First, he focused on the fact that Scripture alone must be the authority for the church, must be the authority of religious truth. And his second focus was on God's glory. Now, in France, there, there would arise a persecution against Protestants, and, and so uh, uh, Calvin would, would flee. But in the process of all of that, Calvin had written a letter to the king of France, and this is what he said defending the position of the reformers or of the Protestants. He said, a very great, great question is at stake. How God's glory may be kept safe on earth. How God's truth may retain its place of honor. How Christ's kingdom may be kept in good repair among us. So, so Calvin is writing to the king of France and, he, and he's arguing that we need to be concerned about how to keep a focus on the glory of God. Now, this focus on God's glory became the driving force of John Calvin's life. Calvin's passion for God's glory leaves us asking a question, and the question is this, what were you created for? Calvin had the sense that he was created to live for the very glory of God, but, but what about you? What are you created for? Well, we're going to look in 1 Corinthians 10 as we think about this question together. We continue our series focusing on the Reformation and uh, this year marks the 500th year of the Reformation on October 31st, 1517, when Calvin produced the 95 Theses, the, the Reformation was set in motion. And, and so we observe this 500th anniversary, thinking a bit together about how the truths that were recovered from Scripture during the Reformation still impact and shape our lives today. And we're talking about John Calvin, and like Luther, and like all of us, Calvin was sinful, and he said and did some things that, that weren't good. He went wrong in, in some directions, uh, but God also used him in, in great ways. So today, we're talking about this idea of God's glory alone. The Reformers emphasized uh, five truths. We, you call them the five solas because of the Latin, uh, sola scriptura, or sola Christe. And so the, the Reformers emphasized this notion of God's glory. Well, God's glory has a way of tying together all 
of the, the emphases of the Reformation, sort of a glue that, that binds them together. One author said it like this. Simply put, the fact that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, without any meritorious contribution of our own, in other words, without us adding anything to it, it ensures that all glory belongs to God and not to us. Likewise, the fact that Scripture alone is our final authority protects the glory of God against every human conceit. So this notion, this focus on God's glory alone sort of brings together the emphases of the Reformation. Now, as we jump into 1 Corinthians 10, you'll remember that this was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Let's look together at 1 Corinthians 10. We'll begin in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of, con- for the, sake of the conscience of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I've given thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many, that they may be saved. So Paul says here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 23 and following, uh, he's addressing this issue of, of meat sacrificed to an idol. And in the first century, this was a pressing issue because a lot of the idol worship would, would include sacrifices and then meat from those sacrifices were, uh, was sold. And so early Christians were saying, is it okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? And, and basically Paul's saying, well, an idol's not real and God created everything and, and he made it. So if you want to eat it, there's no problem with that. And he says, if an unbeliever invites you to his house and serves you meat, you don't have to go, hey, was this meat sacrificed to an idol? Just eat. Don't worry about it. But he says, if someone brings up to you, another believer brings up to you and says, hey, the meat that he's serving was used in idol worship. He says, then don't eat the meat for the sake of that brother because you don't want to harm his, his faith. You don't want to cause him to struggle or stumble in his faith. So, so just don't eat it. Let it go. And then in verse 31, he says, whatever you do, whether it's eating or drinking, whatever it is, just, just do it for God's glory. He says, kind of let that be the defining principle uh, of the decisions that you make. So so Paul concludes this discussion again with the verse that we're focusing on this morning, verse 31. Um, The word here in verse 31 that's translated glory can mean honor or radiance or splendor. can mean brightness, renown. All all of these ideas are, are captured there in this word that's translated glory. So living for God's glory is to live in such a way that we reveal who he is. We reveal his radiance, his glory. In a sense, it might be good to say that we reflect his glory. We, we become reflectors of who he is when, when we live for his glory. Isaiah 26, 8 captures the idea well. Yes, Lord, we wait for you. Our desire is for your name and renown. Our desire is for your name and your renown. Is that your desire? Is your desire that God's name be made great in your life? Is that, is that what drives you? Is that the passion of your life? 
You see, Paul is arguing that a Christian should give up his own desires and his own rights. And for the sake of God's glory, he should strive to, to, to pour his life out. Live in such a way that your behavior encourages others to see God's greatness. So Paul says that we should glorify God in, in all of life, even in the mundane, daily activities life, even when you eat and drink, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, just, just seek to glorify God. In Colossians three seventeen, Paul says it this way, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, John Calvin, commenting on 1 Corinthians 10, 31, wrote this, there is no part of our life, no action so minute that it ought not be directed to the glory of God. Every part of who we are should be directed to God's glory, to, to his honor. Now, Paul continues on in verse 32. He says, don't be offensive to the Jews or to the non-Jews, the Greeks, or, or even to the church. Strive to live in such a way that you're not harming people, that you're not, that you're not uh, offending them. Verse 33 says, I try to please everyone in all I do, putting my interests aside and putting their interests ahead. And then in verse 33, we, we see the reason, the motivation. What's Paul say? Because I want to see people saved. I want to see people come to know Jesus. So Paul says, whatever you do in the littlest details of your life, seek to honor God. And what this means is this. We're not just striving to honor God when we come to, to church on a Sunday morning. Surely we, we want to when we gather together like this, but we're seeking to live all of life for the glory of God. When, when we go to work on Monday, we're seeking to live for, for God's glory. When we get off work, we're seeking to live for God's glory. Come Friday night, we're seeking to live for God's glory. Come Saturday night, the same is true. Paul is saying that there should not be a compartment uh, approach to our lives, that we don't need to have little compartments. We're here, I'm going to put on my, my God face, my church face, and I'm going to go and do that, and I'm going to check it off the list, and then I'm going to do, well, I got work, and I'll do my work thing, and then I've got leisure, and I'll do my... No, Paul is saying everything you do, all the time, live in such a way that your life brings great glory to God. Why? Because living for God's glory in this way helps people see what God is like. It helps people see His glory. So when we live for God's glory, that is, we live a life of integrity, we live a life of service and humility, it helps people see God. And Paul's ultimate goal, again, as we see in verse 33, is that people are saved. Now, we've all seen a teenager or a young adult, unfortunately, who seems to be bent on making bad decisions, hanging around with people who, you know, if they continue to maintain those associations, you know it's going to hurt them beginning to drink maybe or beginning to do drugs and we say to ourselves, oh, I wish I could go to him and just say to him, don't you see that if you head this direction, this is what's gonna happen. Don't you see that? And yet we know that most of the time when, when, a, when a young man or a young lady's in, in, in that place, most of the time they can't hear, can they? they? They just can't hear what you have to say. And, and so we are heartbroken and we pray. We, we hope to see something change and it often doesn't change, not always, thankfully, but it often doesn't change until they come to the place where their bad decisions have brought them a lot of pain. And then that has a way of, of opening our eyes. Now, in reality, there are some parallels, not exact parallels, albeit, but there are some parallels to, to this rebellious young adult to our own lives. And this is what I mean. 
Many of us, we're caught up in doing this or we're caught up in doing that. We're really focused on, on this right here or that right there. And we're neglecting to live for the purpose that we were really created. The purpose we were really created was to live for God's glory, to enjoy Him and to glorify Him. And so we give our lives to, to these lesser pursuits, to, to these smaller pursuits. And what we don't realize is that we're giving up the greatest for something that's far less. And like the teenager who doesn't see until he finds himself in serious pain, often we don't see until, we wait, until we've wasted a lot of years of our lives and sometimes even our whole lives. You see, you were created to enjoy God and glorify Him. That, that's why you're here. That, that's the reason. So don't wake up one of these days in the autumn of your life wishing that you'd given your life to that which matters most. No, today. Hear the Lord's call today to, to enjoy Him and love Him. So because we've been meant to live for God's glory alone, let's think practically about this in our lives and in the life of our church. Number one, seek to glorify God personally. In your own life, seek to glorify Him in, in all that you do. Glorify Him personally. So why did God create you? Well, Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, you were created to know God and to glorify Him. You were created to love Him. God didn't create you because He was lonely or because He was needy. The scriptures are clear. God enjoys perfect fellowship within the relationship of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't need us, but God created us that we might glorify Him, that we might love Him and, and treasure Him and know Him. And you know what? That gives life great purpose. It means we don't have to throw our lives away chasing empty pursuits. It means we don't have to throw our lives away doing things that harm and, and, and destroy us. It means that if we'll, if we'll say to God, I want to know you and love you and I want my life to glorify you, then we can live for the very reason that we've been created. What good news is that? That life matters. That life has meaning. That's incredible news. You were created for fellowship with Him. You were created to glorify Him. Psalm 1611 says, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. And this is the bottom line. When we find our greatest joy in loving Him and in knowing Him, God is most glorified in us. When we, when we say to God, God, I want to know you and I want to follow you and serve you, then we live lives that bring him honor, that, that bring him glory. It, it, it shapes the way we live. So the question this morning is this, do you long to know Jesus? Do you long to delight in him and, and find your purpose in, in following him? John 15, 8 says this, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So, so another way that we glorify God is by producing fruit. Well, what does that mean? That means that we live in such a way that we're helping people come to know Jesus. We're helping people grow in their relationship with him. We're, we're serving people and loving people in his name. That, that's bearing fruit. So, so one of the ways we glorify God is by, by serving him, by, by allowing our lives to be used for his glory. Why try to use a key to hammer a nail? 
It's not going to work. Or why try to use a hammer to start your car? These are ridiculous ideas, right? And yet many of us are doing exactly that with our lives. We are using our lives for all kinds of purposes. But we're missing the true purpose that God has for our lives. And that is to know Him and enjoy Him and live for His glory. We're using our lives in all kinds of ways, but we so often miss the one that matters most. So seek to glorify God in your life personally. Number two, seek to glorify God in your family. In Ephesians 5, we see that that marriage was designed to preach the gospel. Marriage was designed to reveal how much Christ loves his bride or loves the church. So, So your marriage, if you're married, your marriage is meant to preach the gospel. It's meant to show people the love of Christ. That's what marriage is meant to do. So how do you glorify God in marriage? Well, you love your spouse and you treasure your spouse. You're sweet and understanding and tender with your spouse. And you live in such a way that you're showing people what kind of love Christ has. Now, I saw a few elbows here and there, but anyways. Um... Not only do we want to live God-glorifying marriages, we want to live uh, God-glorifying families in terms of, of what we do with our children. We want to teach our children that their purpose is to live for God's glory, that they're going to be at their best when they're living for, for Him. In Psalm 78, verse 5, the Scriptures say, He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel which He commanded to our fathers to teach their children so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. They were to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep his commands. So as parents, how do you live for the glory of God with your children? You nurture them in the faith. You train them up in the scriptures. You teach them to love Jesus. You teach them to serve and to be committed to to worship and all those kinds of things. So do you see your marriage and your family? They're a way to glorify God. Not only that, if you're, if you're single, I, I want to say a word to those of you who are single. If you're single and you're looking for a relationship, if you want to glorify God in relationships, then only, only seek to, to be in a relationship with someone who really loves the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, 1 Corinthians 7 makes it clear that a believer has no business being in a, in a relationship with someone who doesn't love God and who isn't growing in Christ. So if you're single and, and, you'd like, and you would like to be in a relationship, you would love to be married, then you wait on the Lord. Wait for him. That's how you glorify God. And what I mean by that is you don't settle for someone who doesn't love him. And also, if you're single, use your singleness to pour into others. Use the time that you have as a means of furthering the gospel. Seek to glorify God in your marriage and in your family. And yes, in your singleness. Three, seek to glorify God in the church. Romans 15, 5 through 6 says, Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and with one voice. You see, God's intent is that we're unified as a church family, that we love one another, that we're committed to the spread of the gospel. And when we are that kind of a church, then the church, what we're doing here, brings great glory to God. John 13, 34, and 35 says the way we love one another helps the outside world see that, that who Jesus is and helps the world see the, the glory of God. So we want to be, be committed to the church so that the church might be an instrument for God's glory to a watching world. So do you pour your life 
into, into helping this church be what, what God has called it to be, to, to put God's glory on display to a watching world and, and to this community particularly? It, it takes sacrifice to do that. All of our schedules are so incredibly busy. And it's so hard to, to make a commitment and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pour my life I'm going to pour my life into this. And, and so in, in today's world, to, to commit to, to being a part of a faith family and helping that faith family bring glory to God takes a lot of sacrifice. But it's a sacrifice that's worthwhile. It's a sacrifice that brings glory to God. So seek to glorify God in the church. Fourth, seek to glorify God in your work. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says this, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, be a great employee. Work hard, be honest, be on time. Have the best interest of your employer in mind. What's he saying to, to an employer? Be a great employer, be fair, be kind. Have the best interest of your employees at heart. What's he saying if you own a business? Don't seek to cheat people, but seek to provide a quality service or a quality product with integrity. These are the things that that God wants us to be, and this is how we glorify Him in work. Remember that work is a part of God's original good design. Work was in place. Adam was given a task of work prior to the fall. So the work's not because of the fall. No, work's a part of God's good plan for us. Now, after the fall... Work sometimes isn't always so good, right? It can be challenging after the fall. But, but it's good for us to work, and we can bring glory to God through our work. It, it's a good thing. If you're retired, just a reminder that you never retire from the work of the Lord as long as you're able. You need to keep serving the Lord. As long as you have the physical strength and, and the, the mental ability, you need to keep serving Him. There's no retirement age. You retire when the Lord takes you home or when you're simply no longer able. You keep going. One, one of the, the areas that we need to be careful about in our culture is there's sort of this emphasis on, hey, I'm going to retire. It's going to be all about me. We're going to do what we want. I'm, we're going to go where we want to go. And, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying your retirement. Of course not. But you know what? Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, you don't want to waste your retirement. You want to take the years that God has given you And you want to use them for his glory. You want to pour your life into things that matter, things that are eternal. That's how you glorify God in retirement. So seek to glorify God in your work and, yes, in your retirement. Fifth, seek to glorify God in your rest and in your leisure. In Mark 6.31, the disciples had been ministering to others at a hectic pace. And Jesus told his disciples, come away by yourselves and rest a while. It's good to rest. It glorifies God. When you take a day off to rest, when you, when you observe that Sabbath principle of, of taking a day every week and resting, it's an acknowledgement that we're not God, that he's unlimited. To take a day of rest is to acknowledge that, that we are limited. It's to acknowledge that we can't do everything. And it's also a, a way that you trust God to say, God, I still have a, a million things that need to be done, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you to help me. Take the stay off to rest and to recuperate. So we can glorify God in our rest. And when we don't rest and we never rest, and that becomes the, the uh, uh, rhythm of our lives, we're making a statement about ourselves that isn't true. We're saying, you know what? I'm so strong and so able. I can do whatever I want. I'm as big as God. 
but it's not true. And eventually it'll cost us. So we must take time for rest and we glorify God. And of course, we don't want to allow our rest to turn into laziness. Is it okay to be a Christian and to enjoy life, to have hobbies that, that you do and have leisurely activities? Is, is that okay? Well, Solomon answers the question in Ecclesiastes 8.15. He says, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What's Solomon saying? He's saying it's good for, for people to enjoy life here on earth. It's good for them to, to enjoy a good meal and, and uh, uh, to, to, to embrace life. That's a good thing to do. So it's good to have a hobby. It's good to take time for leisure. Let's say that you're on the golf course then when you're there on the golf course, strive to honor the Lord in that. Strive to, to take opportunities to use that hobby, to, to make connections with people who don't know the Lord, to, to be able to have influence for the gospel. See, see, we can take our hobbies and our leisure and even use them for, for God's glory. But we also need to be careful when it comes to hobbies that we keep them in the proper perspective. Hobbies are really good at giving us sort of refreshment and getting our mind off all the things that are going on but they make really lousy gods. And it's really easy for hobbies to become gods. We think about them. We talk about them. We alter our schedules regularly for them. We read about them. We spend money on them. And if we're not careful, they become the obsession or the the desire of our hearts. And that's not going to glorify God. Our hobbies must be in the proper place so we can enjoy some time for hobbies and leisure, and that's good. But we cannot allow them to take the place of God. That does not honor him. So we want to honor God with our rest and with our leisure. Let's think about this idea of God's glory in the context of our church family. Our church's ultimate purpose is to glorify God. What's the marching orders for this church? It's to glorify God. How do we do that? It's by fulfilling the mission that he's given us. It's by going and preaching the gospel to the world and making disciples. That's how we fulfill the mission that God has given us to glorify him, to lift him up. Ephesians 3.21 says this, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. So God has called us as a faith family to join together, to grasp hands and to, with all of our hearts to be serious about reaching this community and seeing the gospel spread around the world and seeing disciples made. And when we do that, God is honored here. He is glorified here. But you know what else it means? It means that in a church that's committed to his glory, it means we make the mission central. We make the mission, the call that God has given us to to share the gospel, we make that central. And that means that we lay aside our own preferences. We lay aside our own desires. You know what? A lot of the times in a church, we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to kind of make it about us. Well, I like this and I don't like that. This needs to be changed. And we're not using Bible to make those arguments. We're just using personal preference. It's what I want. And if we're not careful, we become very selfish in a church. And when we do, it's evidence that we've made this about this. And it needs to be about him. It needs to be about the glory of God. So yes, I'll gladly lay aside personal preference, not scripture, of course, but personal preference for the sake of the mission. Sure, This can change and that can change. I'm not going to get in a rut and demand my way. No, I'm going to ask what's going to help us further the mission and let's do it. may not be exactly what I like. You know what? What I like, it's auxiliary. This is about the glory of God, not about me. 
And that's how all of us must see things, that this church would be the kind of faith family that God has called us to be. And so we seek to glorify God as a family together as we gather for worship, as we go out in ministry. Now, John Calvin died on May 27, 1564. He was only 54 years old. His writings during his lifetime had significant impact, and, and they have continued to in the, in the study of theology. They continued to have great impact. But when John Calvin died, interestingly, he was buried at a secret location in an unmarked grave. A secret location in an unmarked grave. Want to know why? It's because this is exactly what John Calvin requested. During his lifetime, he had seen the saints in the church venerated. And he had seen people make pilgrimages to to graves to pay homage. And Calvin wanted none of that. Calvin wanted the glory of God. That's what he wanted life to be about. He wanted God's glory alone. And brothers and sisters, you are meant to live for God's glory, to make his glory the aim of your life. That's what you were created for, to live for him. Are you chasing after meaning and purpose in pursuits that are, that are small, in pursuits that, that, that are little, in pursuits that like an early morning mist will be gone in no time Are you pouring your life into those things? Are are you giving your life to some lesser purpose? Brothers and sisters, all of us need to hear the call of God here. We all need to recognize that we were created to love Him with all that we are, to enjoy Him, and to live for His glory. So ask Him this morning. I'll be doing the same. Let's ask Him to help us love him more, to help us find our delight in him, to help us make our passion his glory and not our own. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Today, if you're not a believer, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, this is, this is what the scriptures say, that, that Satan has has blinded you so that you don't see how magnificent and how incredible and awesome God is. He's blinded your eyes and and made it where you you can't see. Think of the majesty of creation. Think of the incredible mountains and the beautiful oceans. You see these, the, the handiwork of God, and it makes you, as you look at these incredible and beautiful sights, it makes your mouth open wide. In awe. And what does all of that point to? It points to the fact that God is glorious. Look at the intricacies of a a human and hold the tiny newborn baby and look at that little child and you see the glory of God. Oh, how amazing. What an incredible creator. And you think that God loved so much, so passionately, that he put his own son on a cross to be killed. Why? For our sin. He was put in the grave and he came back to life and he made a way for for those of us who are sinners and that's every single one of us to be saved. But the scriptures tell us here that if you don't know Jesus, Satan's trying to blind you. He's trying to keep you from seeing the miracle that God is, the incredible 
wonderful majesty of God. And so today, if you're here and you're not sure where you're at, you're not sure if you believe this stuff, you're not sure if this is all real, I plead with you to say this to God. God, remove the blinders off my eyes and let me see you in all your glory. Let me see you. Oh, and this is what we're seeking. We're seeking that we might see his glory and live for his glory. And friend, I say to you today that if the blinders are removed from your eyes and you recognize the glory of God, your life will have a new purpose. Your life will have new meaning. Join me in prayer.